Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Welcome to this week's EU Confidential podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor. Ryan Heath is on holiday in a desperate attempt to avoid Brexit. And we're going to try and strike a balance in this week's podcast between Brexit and non-Brexit items. We're going to mix things up right at the beginning because we're recording the podcast just before the start of the big EU summit in Brussels this week. So we're going to have a special mini summit podcast panel to start off. We'll talk to Politico's Paris correspondent, Reem Montas, and our Brussels playbook author, Florian Eder, and get some different perspectives on Brexit and also on Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's suspension from the European People's Party, and also on the Liberals gearing up for the European Parliament election and their tentative alliance with Emmanuel Macron. Then we'll hear from our EU election polling guru, Cornelius Hirsch, and then we'll have a timely reminder that some things are more important than Brexit and than elections. That's when we'll hear an interview that Ryan recorded with Flemish culture minister Sven Gatz, and he talks about a book he wrote in response to the Brussels attacks three years ago. That book explores the different communities in this very complex city. That's all coming up in this week's EU Confidential, and we'll start with that special summit panel. So it's a warm welcome to our uh, mini special summit panel, Reem Montaz. Hi, Reem. Hi. Hi, Florian Eder. Hi, hello. Florian, of course, is our Brussels playbook author and Reem is our Paris correspondent. So I just thought this is a bit of a high wire act, obviously, because I thought we would talk about the summit, which is about to start soon after uh, we record this podcast. So it's always a danger to do something newsy because the news can overtake us. But it just feels like it's been such a big week, particularly on the Brexit front. But I think it's quite interesting maybe for our listeners to get another perspective on that. Reem, is Brexit a big deal in France? Well, it really hasn't been leading the news, if that's what you're asking. I think it's a big deal for people who are directly affected by it, like French businesses that have business dealings with the UK. But otherwise, the general population does not really think or talk much about it. It is not at the top of the news bulletins at all. Florian, it's obviously a big deal in this town. Who are the key players here? Who's driving the EU response to this? 
That's pretty much as always the, the European Commission with its you know, resources, the legal service, the Article 50 special team, its preparedness section has done a lot of work on this. And then, of course, today and on summit day, everybody else will be very much involved. And actually, one thing that we, I think, can say about today's summit is that there are no prepared conclusions for the Brexit part of the proceedings. So usually diplomats would kind of draft the conclusions. This has not happened this time. Actually, yesterday evening, at a very late night evening, ambassadors were talking about it, but they left it for leaders themselves to come up with a response to Theresa May's letter that she sent yesterday, asking for, obviously, an extension to the Brexit talks. And obviously for summit veterans, we know that normally when the leaders are drafting things themselves, that means it's a late night. It means it's a late night, but I guess it can also be fun. You know, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, used to be a shepherd himself, so he knows how to do these things. Angela Merkel has her shepherd around, so uh, she will probably just walk out and, and ask him. Others at previous occasions took a certain pleasure in actually drafting themselves, like the Italian prime minister, Conte. But, you know, on a more serious note, it reflects the seriousness, actually, of the situation, and everybody is aware that this is a, an important moment in time one senior diplomat yesterday said this is really a historic watershed in the European history as Brexit is becoming, perhaps becoming reality at some point. Mm. Reem, France seems to at least publicly have taken quite a hard line be playing the kind of bad cop in terms of what they are willing to offer the UK in terms of an extension. What do you think is behind that rhetoric and is it just rhetoric or is that actually what they would prefer, you know, a hard Brexit sooner rather than later if that's what it comes to? They do not prefer a hard Brexit without a deal. That is not something they want because they stand to lose a lot. Let's not forget that France is one of the biggest trading partners with the UK. They have a very close relationship when it comes to security, to intelligence, to selling weapons, to all sorts of things. That being said, the French are also a founding member of the EU and they're very, very protective of the union and all of the French officials we've been talking to have said that that is what is going to trump everything. And they've held a very coherent line, at least for the past few weeks. They don't want a no deal, but they also don't want an extension to turn into a few more months of Theresa May going and coming in an attempt to renegotiate another deal. They're being very hard on, there will be no more negotiating. And that now, if she wants an extension to get this through, she needs to get a vote before the 29th, before she can get the extension. Right, and at time of speaking, that seems to be pretty much the standard EU line now that you know nothing will be granted, formally at least, until or unless there's another vote in the House of Commons. At that point, Florian, that, that Reem picks up about the importance of the union, it feels like that's becoming, it's coming more and more to the fore, right? Partly because of the European Parliament elections. What are the other things that are on people's minds here that are making them say, we have to really bring this to a conclusion? Well, you know, Brexit Day is near. It's March 29 in a default scenario. So people are aware that something needs to happen. A lot of the people involved here would still say that it is for Prime Minister Theresa May to propose and, you know, to ask for something, which she did yesterday. So I think what we will see today is that for the first time, perhaps, there will be nobody to be able to say, we need to know what Theresa May wants, because they know what she wants, an extension. By the way, under the condition of her winning the vote in, in Commons, it's not only a, a condition by the Europeans, it's something that she had written in her letter herself. So an extension and a certain 
guarantee a certain an endorsement, a rubber stamping uh, of a deal that she had uh, agreed on with Commission President Juncker in Strasbourg a couple of weeks ago. So an official endorsement by the European Council, which would uh, enable her to go back to the House of Commons and say this is not the same deal that you already voted down twice. This is something substantially new. But thinking long term, just reading your playbook this morning, it's, it seems like factors like the EU budget negotiations, the next commission, the European Parliament elections are, are kind of looming large in people's calculations. Why, why is that suddenly coming to the fore? Of course, I mean, the European elections is probably the thing that is on many people's minds now. By the way, if things go as we think they would go and the European Council grants an extension to the UK until May 22, so just before the European elections, that would mean that, you know, Brexit is perhaps on May 23, where the voting starts for the European Parliament. So this is not the preferred option, I would say, for people who stand in the election, who stand as, as MEPs. The European election is the one thing that everything is connected with. So there's a big fear that if Britain's still in but does not pay, take part in the vote and is in for longer, that you know the whole legitimacy of the next European Parliament and thereby not only of the Parlament but of the whole system here in Brussels, of all top jobs here in Brussels, and so on and so on, is jeopardized, is even paralyzed. So that is something. And then, as you say, there's a few important things to talk about, to decide, to negotiate, to bring to an end, like the next European budget and things like that. So we hear a lot of talk. We can't be distracted by Brexit all the time. We've had this for too long. But at the end, actually, I would say if there is a choice, as Reem said before, between, you know, a no-deal Brexit or pushing Britain over the cliff and having them around for a longer time, even if they are a certain nuisance to discussions like that, uh, it is pretty clear uh, what everybody would go for. Nobody actually will push the United Kingdom over the cliff. Interesting. Well, of course, Brexit much as this may come as a shock to our uh, British listeners, not the only thing that happens in Brussels or that is happening or has happened in Brussels this week. Another big story was uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's party, Fidesz, being suspended from the European People's Party, which is, as uh, most of you will know, the big centre-right bloc that gathers together European Christian Democrats and Conservatives. Reem, is this making waves in Paris? Les Républicains, of course, the Conservative Party in, in France, are, are members of the EPP. Have they had much to say about it? So the Les Républicains have been attacked in the past for... Uh, either sort of not being very clear on where they stand with Orban in that group. That conversation is also very restricted to those who really follow what's happening in Brussels. And the Républicains today are saying that this has been kind of made into a bigger deal than it is and that there is consensus within the group and that basically journalists are making a big deal out of it. Florian, what's your analysis of how they've managed th that situation? So there were calls for an expulsion. And of course, there was Orban and others saying, you know, nothing to see here. I'm, you know, I'm a perfectly upstanding member of this uh, party family. How have the EPP managed it or gone about managing it? I mean, it has become pretty clear that uh, Orban and his Fidesz party is not an ordinary member of the EPP, that there is, you know, almost no common ground anymore on some policies. And I'm not talking about uh, migration policies. This is how Orban would, would brand the whole thing. And, you know, the EPP's leaders have very clearly said at the end that this is not about migration. It is about an anti-EU campaign by the Hungarian government. So that was the starting point. At the end, they went for a suspension, not for an exclusion, which was not hard to predict, honestly, because that's the, you know, the middle ground. Uh, you can say, and you do, strip Orban and Fidesz officials of voting rights. He doesn't have a say anymore. 
in the party's doings and dealings. He will be re-allowed only if a, a wise main group decides or recommends that he can come back because he's given up on the policies that his party doesn't consider their own. So there is a factual removal of Orban of the party structures while the door is not closed forever. So a very political decision that, of course, time will tell the next weeks, actually, whether that's enough in the, you know, in the eyes of the core electorate, which is important, in the eyes of the people in the other groups in the European Parliament, which the EPP and Manfred Weber, der Spitzenkandidat, will need after the election in his attempts to form a majority in the next European Parliament. But I think what we saw yesterday is at least for the EPP a certain, you know, relief because this has been the only issue that we were here in Brussels were talking about that the party internally was talking about, if they're uh, honest, uh, and a lot of other people were talking about. So there is a certain relief. Mm. Final topic, and this is one that also concerns both France and the EU, and that's uh, Emmanuel Macron's party, La République en Marche, have this kind of alliance, non-alliance with the Liberals and the Liberal group Aldi here have just unveiled their team. They don't have a single lead candidate for the election. They've decided to have a team of candidates. Uh, team Europe, I believe it's uh, called. Reem Houd, from the En Marche perspective, I mean, how close do they want to get to Aldi? What's their, what's their long-term play here in the European Parliament elections and beyond? You know, the more I talk to LREM people, I asked them lately, are you trying to do a hostile takeover of Alde? Because that's how it seemed to me from the outside. And they immediately say, no, 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 it's not a hostile takeover. It's more that we want to expand, really, Alde. We want to make sure that we are gathering all of the people who really are pro-Europe. And one actually told me what we want to do is we want to replicate what Emmanuel Macron did in his presidential campaign in France on the European level. Now, what does that mean? Emmanuel Macron, what he did was, he did do a hostile takeover on the center-left and the center-right in France, and he blew up the right-left kind of divide. Is he going to be able to do that on the European level? It is much more complicated. Right now, what they seem to be doing, what LROM tell us they want to do is, after the election, once they see how well they've done, they want to build a new group in Parliament. They say they want it to be based on the members of ALDE, but that is still part of sort of the negotiation that they're having, and they want to expand it. And then they want to be what they call a central party. They keep saying they don't want to be centrist, and what they mean by central is they want to play a central role and be kind of the kingmakers of the Parliament. Mm. Florian, you spoke to Guy Verhofstadt, the leader of ALDE in, in Parliament yesterday. Was he talking about the alliance with Emmanuel Macron? How is it seen from the ALDE side? The ALDE side looks at this, you know, go a, a couple of years back only. Uh, ALDE is, has been, and probably will be the third biggest group in European Parliament. Guy Verhofstadt for a long time wanted to expand his role, actually. How do you do that in a parliament? You expand the number of your MEPs. As I said, a couple of years ago, uh, he wanted to bring the Italian Five Stars movement into ALDE. That went terribly wrong, so it did not succeed. Uh, and now he tries with Macron, which is a, a different thing, of course. But, uh, you know, the driving force behind this move is to become more important, to become a central force in the European Parliament, actually to have a say on what is going on. He said yesterday in a chat that we had 
that the aim of all this and the Team Europe idea and thing is to break the status quo. The status quo being that the two biggest groups, the EPP, we talked about them, and the socialists and democrats and social democrats <laughs> actually keep the best jobs for themselves. That's how it looks like if you look at the top jobs in Brussels. And that is something that he wants to change by not abiding to the principle that others vow to follow, the Spitzenkandidaten idea by creating this kind of Team Europe, which is seven important figures, seven people. We wanted to show, he said, that we have a number of people who can do important things in the EU. So do with it whatever you want. Are they seven Spitzenkandidat or none at all? We don't quite know. The presentation of the team this morning, the official presentation, was a rather uh, swift affair. We could see the president of the Alde party called everybody on stage and three minutes later he said, well, let's go to lunch now. Mm. So we'll see how serious this issue is going to be. Yeah, well, maybe they just knew that journalists were going to have to save their energy for a late night tonight. Maybe they were trying to do us a favour. Uh, Florian, Reem, thanks very much for joining us. Now it's time for a regular catch-up with Politico's EU polling guru, Cornelius Hirsch, He talked recently to Ryan about the challenges of doing EU-wide forecasting and how national polls are not always the best guide. Hi Cornelius. Hi Ryan, thanks for having me again on the show. Maybe let's look at an issue around the risks of over-interpreting national opinion polls. And the reason I raise that is that we obviously have relatively few polls that are conducted about the voting intentions around the European Parliament election specifically. It's much more common to ask people which party they support at the national level of politics. So we've got very vastly different data sets that you deal with when you come up with your polling charts and make these seat predictions. What do you think are the limits there and how much can we really just assume that the national results are going to be the same at the European level? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the point is, it differs. It differs from country to country. Actually, when we set up our model for the European Parliament election 2019, we went back and ran the numbers from our poll of polls for the national elections and compared them to the actual results for the European Parliament elections for each party in each country. And in some countries, we couldn't find a structural difference, right? For example, also, if you look at today's polls asking how would you vote if tomorrow the European Parliament election would be held in Italy versus the results for the question, how would you vote if the general election would be held tomorrow? Then you see in Italy, for example, not a structural difference. So it's basically the same numbers. But for some parties in some countries, there obviously is a big difference. And yeah, we try to factor that in and are also working constantly on updating our model to better take into account this structural difference for certain parties between the voting intention in the national election and in the European Parliament election. Maybe let's list some of the countries then. What would you say are the countries where the EU and the national intentions match up most closely, just if there are three or four countries that you can think of? And then what are some of the countries where there's a big gap? Yeah, the good thing is it's the big parties that also make up most of the seats. In Italy, the voting intention seems to be very similar. The same is true for Germany, where at the moment we can't really see a big difference. There is, and quite interesting, it's actually the right-wing AfD, which is underperforming in the EP-specific polls compared to the national numbers. On the other hand, for example, in, in some Eastern European countries, especially there where turnout is really low, there we see the big difference. And I think that's... The, this turnout also explains this difference because some of the larger parties there don't seem to be able to turn out their base in the European Parliament election while they 
do so in the national election. And there we will have to see and also wait for more data coming in to be more precise on this structural difference between national voting intention and European Parliament voting intention. That's a really important point that maybe people listening aren't aware of, which is that the overall turnout across the EU in 2014 was 42.5% in rough terms. However, if you dive into the national numbers, it varies dramatically. It goes from 13% in Slovakia to 18% in the Czech Republic and levels like 23 to 25% in countries like Slovenia, Poland, Hungary, Croatia, and so on. And then it goes all the way up to 90% in countries like Luxembourg and Belgium, where they have compulsory voting. And And it's really those countries that have that critical, tiny turnout where you've got most risk when you do polling interpretation. Yes, exactly. That's our weak spot, I would say. And But I'm really confident that also this time more polling firms are going to ask specifically about the voting intention in the European Parliament election. And we already see this now and we're collecting all those polls to analyze if there is a structural difference between the national and the EP polls. And we're constantly updating our model and improving it just to provide our, the readers of polofpolls.eu and of Politico with the, the best possible outcome. Cornelius Hirsch, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. That was Politico's EU election polling guru, Cornelius Hirsch, and we'll hear more from him in the weeks and months ahead. Next, let's hear Ryan's interview with Flemish culture minister Sven Gatz. Welcome to the podcast, Sven. Thank you. Now, the reason we've invited you, though, is because you are publishing a book, and I've got it in my hands here, and I've been reading it and enjoying it, and it's called Molenbeek Malbeek, A Brussels Tale. And it revolves around one very important day in Brussels, which was when the terror attacks happened three years ago, 22nd of March, 2016. And before we get to the book, I thought maybe we could start with that day and what happened to you on that day and, mm-hmm. your, and your memories of the day. And I'm, I will chip in as well. With yes, what I remember. well, that was a very particular day for, for all of us, of course, yeah. for some people even more particular. But mine started as usual when I, I went to work and in the car about eight o'clock in the morning, just before I heard for the first time, and as many people did, something was happening at the airport. And this gave me the emotion and also the thought that, well, it's not going to happen, is it? But you knew it was. Eh? I had the same. I and, was like, this and, is and inevitable so, yeah, in a way. Yeah, like, yeah. It was always so this was happen. really the, sen- the sentiment that I had. And then five minutes later, it was on the news and actually, actually something really bad happened. And then it was already very, very bad, but it got worse because I, I went to a meeting in, in the parliament and then when Malbe came in and that was really... Then and fear, that was the second then, bomb in the metro. Yeah, and then fear, yeah, yeah, then fear really yeah. took over because you said, okay, this is the second one. Where is this going to end? Yeah. Is there is going the to be a third next? one? If you were in the parliament building, well, that was not that's a, a that, that didn't came to mind, uh, didn't come to mind. But you said, where will the next one be? That was very special. We, we had a conversation with the members of parliament. Are we going to continue our meeting? Because is this really what we are doing, what we have to do on, on this day? But we did. And then everyone had the strange feeling to say, 
what am I going to do for the rest of the day? And, and everyone decided that for themselves because government also, I think about uh, around 11 o'clock said, you have to stay at home, you have to go at home. I just said for me, the best thing was to keep on working and say, okay, I have to go uh, outside of Brussels to negotiate a contract for a Brussels cultural institution. So like, I might as well do that. So I did. And then I came back in Brussels in the afternoon. It was a very nice day. Eh? The, the yeah, sun was shining, but this was really the, not the real uh, nice day at the same time. It was a very awkward day because it was almost as calm in the afternoon, at least, as a Sunday, but it wasn't a Sunday. Yeah. So it's a very strange uh, atmosphere. And the thing that I remember was, I'm, I'm biased now because I was part of this English-speaking media, but immediately the whole world wanted to know what was going on. Yeah. And they turned to people like Politico because they thought we could speak to them in yeah. English about it. And we'd been through the lockdown for four days in November, just a yeah. few months beforehand. Yeah. I remember thinking what a shambles that was. And it became very harsh on Belgium because everyone was attacking it for bad governance and yeah, yeah. for somehow protecting the bombers yeah. and not finding them and yeah. so on. And I felt very conflicted because, you know, in my head, I had to be tough in my analysis. Yeah. And then I was also very heartbroken because you realize somehow that there's so many good things in the city too. Yeah, yeah. But uh, CNN doesn't want to know about that. No, no, of course. But I wrong. recognize these feelings very well because... Even if I'm, uh, of course, as a born and, and bred Brusseler, uh, promoting my city as much as I can, I try to stay critic too, because not everything's going well here. Eh? If there's one thing I take away from the experience is that Belgians didn't overreact. I think sometimes they were too lenient on the process of yeah. the stib and how yeah. we didn't shut down the metro in time. But in other countries, if this had happened, immediate declarations of emergency, there'd be new laws, there'd be yeah. people wanting blood, and Belgians really didn't do that. They mm. wanted to think about what happened yeah. and react. Let's calmly. say that was one good thing, even if it wasn't a good thing at all, that we had this lockdown before. And then I think we overreacted a little bit at that point but okay it's not easy to have the, the right tonality of, of reaction and we said okay we have to find a solution for this situation but we also will have to find a way to live with it well maybe sometimes Belgians don't have enough principles but they're very pragmatic and sometimes that might help a little mm -hmm. now let, let's talk about the book tell us where you got the idea from and I should explain to people the, mm -hmm. the concept that you explained very eloquently at the beginning, where you talk about the Molenbeek and the Malbec, the two streams that connect in the middle in Brussels, but how they represent two very different mm. strands of what Brussels is, kind of the yin and the yang. And I, I just loved this idea where you were talking about it's a city where people live side by side, but not together. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just a beautiful way to talk about the divisions mm. that exist here. So like, why did you come to write this book? And just give us a little introduction. Well, what I'm doing now for almost 25 years in politics is one of the things that I'm doing is to try to get to understand to non-Brussels, mostly people living in Flanders, but also Walloons and also internationally, what is Brussels actually? Yeah? Because it is a city that is not easily understood. I think that people coming from abroad understand Brussels more easily than, than Belgians themselves. In fact, I'm not comfortable with that idea. And so I tried to explain to 
my uh, co-Belgian citizens to say, okay, this is just an international city that you should visit as you visit, for instance, Barcelona, Vienna, Copenhagen, uh, whatever. Some uh, of them do that more easily. Yeah. I'm amazed yeah. the number of Flemish who kind of think Brussels is this weird, dirty little thing they see yeah. on the horizon yeah. sometimes and they've never been here yeah. and they wouldn't let their children yeah. go there. Yeah. And yeah. So it's absurd. It's an absurdity yeah. and I tried to fight it. And so I said, how can I touch people? I have to touch them emotionally. Because if I write a book as a politician on how I see Brussels and how Brussels should change, that will be in the election program for the months coming. And, and that's, but that's another way of, of trying to get to the, the minds and the hearts of people. So emotionally, I thought, let's start from the worst day, because no one would be able to say that I wrote a too positive book about Brussels, because I, I wrote a book on the day that was really uh, the lowest point since decades. But then I tried to create seven personas. They are fictive, they're, they don't exist. There's a Flemish culture minister in there at one yeah, point. Yeah, but that was... I, a, I wonder if that was art that, imitating that. That, that, was, that was a little cameo in my own uh, book. It's not essential, let's say. The essential element in the book is you have the emotions of that particular day, but uh, the particular day is lived and seen by seven different people. And I tried to talk about Brussels from their point of view and their hopes, their observations, their comments, their dialogues with people who they love or people who they have conflicts with. And so by the multi-perspective element, I tried to really create what Brussels is about because it's a multi-city, multi-whatever city. Mm -hmm. And that is not easy to manage or to create a common citizenship on. But the roots of what might be better in Brussels are also in the book. Something that I think people intuitively know, but they don't really think about in numbers, or if you're listening on the other side of the world, you never thought about it like this, but really half the population now was born Mm -hmm. somewhere else. And so that is, I guess that is discomforting if you were native born in Belgium. But it's what makes Brussels so amazing. So it's it's the good thing as well. It's something that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when this was already on the horizon, was a little bit frightening at the time. Uh, so what's going to happen with the city? And now we're there and nothing really special happened. Uh, mm-hmm. We're just all finding our way together. That's another problem, but nothing really uh, happened. And I was really astonished by the fact that just a week ago in the Flemish press, people said, hey, Antwerp is now composed of half of the people not born in Belgium. Maybe born in Belgium, but uh, from, uh, from foreign uh, elders. And I said, guys, why are you talking about this just 40 kilometers from here? There's a city where this is already 10 years. Why do you always have to reinvent complexity in this country and not seeing that it's already existing just in the heart of the country? And this is this special relationship that, well, people all over the world have with their capital. But in Belgium, it's even more special because two languages, uh, the, the French-speaking yeah. thing, well, too many people speak Dutch there. Mm-hmm. That's actually what they say. <laughs> eh? And of course, the other way around, eh, it's pointed out as well. And then there's this European thing, then this immigrant thing. What, what is this city? And in fact, it's just a city. It's maybe a little bit more complicated than other cities, but it's, it's, not, it's just a city. And that is also, from an emotional perspective, the thing I try to tell uh, in, in the book. Now, one of the ideas that comes up from a character called Hamida mm-hmm. is the idea of real Belgians. And I guess she's struggling to be a real Belgian yeah, or be yeah. accepted as a real Belgian. Is that something that you come across much in your work? I guess, I mean, I find that Belgians are very, very warm and welcoming. 
but they really want you to commit into their life. And if you don't want to do that, then they kind of don't want to know about you at the same time. So I get a, a bit of a sense of what mm. this character is talking about. Yes, this is something that is really, even if it's maybe more accepted as average or, or normal, uh, that you can be a Brusseler from whatever uh, culture or other origins that you are, I would have hoped that we would have been further now. I've seen all this migration element come up uh, when I was just at the beginning of my political career and end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. And at the time I thought, well, let's talk good and hard about this and within five years we'll have uh, sorted out this thing and uh, everything will work out fine. I was a little bit naive at the time. Uh, (laughs) And so we're, we're still coping with this. And I wanted to point out this feeling that she has from an empathic point of view and to say, okay, you cannot live in this city if you don't want to understand the other, the others. But it's really crucial. And if you don't understand that a person like Hamida wants to fit in and she will fit in in her own way, then you cannot build a community or a city. And maybe a final question, and maybe this is boring politics at the end of a beautiful story, but is there anything that you took out of the experience of writing the book and the experience of the attacks that you think can translate into new policies? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what can we do to yeah. actually make this city That is work? a very important question because... At the end of the book, I said, okay, now I have to, I'm a politician, so people will ask me this question. What are your conclusions? Because maybe it's a good book. I hope it is. But it what, is. What I not? recommend everybody <laughs> goes out and buys it. Thank you. But what is the next step? And so I asked myself, if we want to create citizenship that we all share here, and it's like maybe we, we are trying to look at it from a, a much too ideal point of view, but in New York, you say when you live in New York, you're a New Yorker. Why can't we create this feeling too when you live in Brussels, you're a Brussler, and not saying you're this or you're that or whatever. And I thought that from the multilingual point of view, it's something we can do because first, the languages divided this city mm-hmm. between Dutch and French, and then English came up and now other languages too. But it's funny, it's divided, but it's not inclusive at the same time. Yeah, where yeah, yeah. I can imagine, I mean, I think probably I'd be shot down for saying it, but I could really imagine English and or Arabic becoming more official languages in this city and then that would be more inclusive. Yeah, but your point of view is correct and not correct at the same time because we try to monitor for 18 years now how Brussels use languages in Mm -hmm. common life. And there is something that is very particular and that is also a little element in the conclusion of my book. People are getting to talk more than before other languages. Mm Before it was simple, you had your mother tongue and you spoke another language and that was it. But now we see that even if the knowledge of the other language is going down, the utilization of it is going up. And so this multilingual element is becoming something very essential for Mm -hmm. the city. So being able to speak two or three or more languages is something becoming very Brussels-like. And I think we have to promote it from a regional point of view, because language is something, if you know how Belgium works, is from a community point of view, Flemish yes. community and French community, yeah. and they meet in Brussels eh, with the school system, uh, which is different. But I think there is really a task for uh, the Brussels capital region in the next years to come to say, we are going to make from Brussels the most multilingual capital in the world. And of course, that begins with, by saying that Everyone is a mother tongue, and this is also a language. So you shouldn't exclude any in that case. Well, maybe digital is the solution there, where 
I'm not saying machine translation is the answer, but there has to be ways that all of the public websites, for yeah. example, they could function in ten languages. Why not? Yeah, uh, well, you, let's say let's problems. start let's start with three or already <laughs> yeah, because uh, there's a, so French, Dutch, and English. But of course, from a New York perspective, people are being more pragmatic than we are about the utilization of languages. Eh? In the end of the day, there is a sort of status of language which is not laid down by law, but more um, that works on the streets, which language you speak more than others. Eh? Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why um, Dutch is also uh, really remain an important language because <laughs> Flanders is not far away. Eh? And that's the reason why a lot but of... It is real neighborhoods. I, yeah. I'm in St. Catherine. Yeah. So and it's a no, Flemish speaking no, but that's one of the reasons why Arabic speaking people eh, or, or Amazigh eh, they tend to apart from their mother tongue speak faster other languages French, Dutch or English eh. but that is a normal struggle between languages but we should embrace this multilingualism and not see it as a problem of dividing the city and that is maybe a tipping point that we reached for the last years and there an enigmatic day as the 22nd of March can help because it's a catharsis and you can build from that point on. Sven Gatz, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of EU Confidential. Ryan will be back in the chair next week and normal service will resume. In the meantime, thanks to the podcast team, particularly Christina Gonzalez and Weidong Lin, and we'll catch you next time on EU Confidential. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.